0: All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome. Uh, it's good wherever you are. It's a good thing to be gathered together this morning uh, as we worship God together. And whether that's in your like, family at home or with some neighbors that you've invited over or here at the church. It's going to move a little bit. So I'm not like Pocahontas thing, you know. Uh, would you take your Bible uh, and turn to Genesis chapter 16 this morning? Uh, our desire as a church is to be a people who would look like God and know God and as a church as we've considered how to do this, we felt a particular call to become a praying people and hear me, this is not just for the sake of praying as we 'll see, praying uh, isn't a strategy uh, to get things done um, we're like we're kind of a task based people uh, and I think sometimes we we really love productivity. Um, Sometimes I'm guilty of answering the question, why do we pray with the common phrase, well, because prayer works. But prayer isn't about achieving our goals. Over the next several weeks, we'll have to ask ourselves, what do we do when prayer doesn't work? Prayer is and will always be about a person and not a practice. It must always be about a person and not a practice. That person is Jesus. The Apostle Paul shouts from the page in his letter to the Philippians, I want to know him, and that's why we pray, and that's why we want to learn to pray. So over the next several weeks this summer, we're going to take some time aside and learn to pray as if we believe that the God of the universe is worth knowing. And I believe that he is. Uh, We've titled this series, Praying with Saints and Sinners, because if prayer is relational, it might do us some good to look at how other people have prayed. So as we set out to do this, I have a question for us. Lots of questions for you this morning. Will we work to be good apprentices? As we apprentice under people in the Bible, as we learn to pray, will we work to be good at that? Yeah? Anybody? Okay, I got some head nods, great. Um, I know the people at home are shouting out of their TV, yes, but we can't hear them, so. (laughs) By now, uh, I I hope you've been able to turn to Genesis chapter 16. Uh, This morning, we're going to learn to pray from a woman named Hagar. We find Hagar in the midst of the pretty chaotic story uh, of a man named Abram and his wife Sarai. Uh, Abram shows up in the story only a couple pages earlier, in chapter 12, as kind of a nobody. Or at the very least, we know nothing about Abraham, or Abram, prior to this. And we know nothing about him, and it seems like he knows a much, as much about God as we know about Abram. Like, nothing. When Abram is 75 years old, seemingly out of nowhere, God, who Abram's never met, shows up. And God tells him to get up and go. And God says he will make Abram a great nation. God will bless him and make his name great. Not only that, God will make Abram a blessing to everyone around him. So much so that those who bless Abram, God will bless, and those who curse him, God will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through him. So, you're in your home, get up and go. God says, And Abram goes. Uh, like At the start of the summer, the the youth interns and I, we went through a personal working style exercise. It's kind of like a a personality test, almost. And in any case, one characteristic that it looked at and was asking questions about, like if you're this or this, uh, and it asked how you feel about being asked to physically move. So uh, like if I went up to Naomi and said, Naomi, actually, I want you to go sit over there right now. Like, how would you feel? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Some people apparently are fine with this. Um, I didn't think that it was something that would bother me until I considered it, and I was like, yeah, that kind of would bother me if you just asked me to move. I don't know why. Um, It's probably something I need to journal about. But for us, or at least some of us, it's shocking that Abram goes. God tells him to get up and go, and it's shocking that he goes. But I wonder if it's supposed to be shocking. Or do you think maybe we underestimate the power of an encounter with God, with Yahweh, the Lord? I wonder how much of Abram's following Yahweh was really because of his stiff upper lip and moral resolve. Perhaps, perhaps when one meets with the Creator God, the options become a little bit more slim. What else would we do but follow? Well, as we continue to follow Abram's story, we find out a little bit more about this stiff upper lip and moral resolve of his, and it sounds like he doesn't have it. One page into his story of following God, he winds up in Egypt and he gets really nervous. He gets it in his head that the Egyptians are going to see his beautiful wife and they're going to take her and kill him. So he has a scheme. Let's tell everyone that you're my sister instead. They go to Egypt, and when the Egyptians see Abram's beautiful sister, the king decides he should take her and treats Abram very well because he likes his sister. But God won't stand for this, and things start to go really poorly for the Egyptians. Long story short, when he finds out about this scheme, the king of Egypt is scared and mad and a little frustrated all at the same time, which makes sense. This is this guy's wife, and he said it was his sister. And he doesn't understand why Abram did this. And so he tells him, just keep your stuff. Keep all the stuff I gave you. And basically says, good riddance. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. So Abram leaves Egypt like Scrooge McDuck, swimming in money. He ended up with sheep and cattle and donkeys and camels and male and female servants. Remember that. This begins a bit of a chaos cycle in the lives of Abram and Sarai. God shows them who he is and what he's going to do. And they kind of nod, go, mm hmm, mm hmm, yeah, I, th- I think I get it now. And there are beautiful moments of trust in their story, to be sure. But sooner or later, and more often than not, they decide to do things their own way. Believe it or not, in a couple chapters, they pull the whole she's my sister stunt again. Like the same thing. <laughs> Um, For much of the story, God tells them what he will do, and Abram and Sarai ask in response, yeah, but how? How, God? How will you make me a great nation if I don't have an heir? How will I have a son when I'm old? How will my wife have a child when she is old? At some points, they actually laugh because they don't understand God's how. Alec Mateer calls their story, a sad, tragedy-bound attempt to help God keep his promises. And maybe as you nervously shift in your seats, let me tell you, you know as well as I do that this isn't unique to Abram and Sarai. From Adam and Eve at the tree to July 4th, 2021, thousands of stories, likely all of our stories, can be summarized in that way, as sad, tragedy-bound attempts to help God keep his promises. Think, right from the start, God says, I've made you in my image, I've made you like me. And humans go, hmm, they say, if we eat this fruit, we'll be like God. There's a reason this story comes first. It's the story of humans. This is what we do. This is why, this is why as I learn more and more about evils done in this country in the name of accomplishing God's goals, I'm not surprised. I'm sad. I'm angry at injustice, but I'm not surprised. This is the script, the cycle, the human condition. Indeed, God has promised that he will bring people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to himself, but in trying to do that the way that made sense to them, people bearing the name of Christ have done deep, deep damage. And this can only spiral. As we'll see every time we try to help God keep his promises, we actually just create another problem that needs to be healed, another opportunity for us to help, and another opportunity for more pain. It's like in those sci-fi movies where they go back in time to fix one thing and then it causes a whole another list of problems. is kind of what we do. And it's in this context that we come to the person, Hagar, and where her story enters. A woman whom you'll see lives her life in light of the consequences of much of Abram's and Sarai's scheming. We've been been talking about God's word all this time, but now we're going to finally read uh, from Genesis 16. And in honor of God's word, I invite you to, to stand as we read together. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Remember that. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children, so go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. And he slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now she knows she is pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son, and you shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. And she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And that's why the well was called Roy. It's still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Spirit of the living God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you inspired this and that you intended us to have this before us this morning. Um, may we learn from you. May we seek to know you more uh, as we pay attention to this slave girl, Hagar. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And may take a seat. Uh, so, there's a lot of backstory um, to get us to this point, but it's important. <laughs> Abram and Sarai here come to this place, which again, another scheme of Abram and Sarai's, because they're always a little nervous about how God is going to accomplish his promises, even though he keeps telling them that he will, and they decide to scheme again. Sarai and Abram decide that maybe when God said Sarai would have a son, he just kind of meant, like, someone close to Sarai. Uh, Her her slave, that's close enough, right? So she gave Abram her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, which just means the foreigner, And we're supposed to pick up that Hagar ended up with these folks in the first place because of the whole she's my sister debacle in Egypt. This is a consequence of Abram and Sarai's scheming. And it continues to spiral for these two and for Hagar. Abram listens to Sarai, and Hagar ends up pregnant. Um, We're not told why, but Hagar begins to despise Sarai. We can probably fill in the gaps. And Sarai treats her so poorly that Hagar runs away into the wilderness. I just noticed this is where Hagar stands in kind of a contrast to the whole Abram and Sarai cycle of helping. Hagar runs to the wilderness. She has nowhere to go. She will probably die, if you look at the journey she's probably trying to make. Hagar has nothing to scheme about. No way of fixing things. She is guilty of dishonoring another human, by the way. She despised Sarai. She is also a victim of abuse. And she's been used as a pawn. Abram and Sarai don't even use her name. If you read this passage, you see that they dehumanize her. They only call her slave. So helpless, with no hope of scheming for herself, left to die in the wilderness, someone sees her and he calls her by name. Hagar, he calls. Uh, Dr. Bruce Waltke says that in all of the thousands of pages of literature from the ancient Near East, here in the Bible is the only time a divinity ever calls a woman by name. Ever. In a culture where women in general were seen as property, we see not just a woman, but a woman who is a slave of a woman addressed by name by the living God because she has value, because she is an image bearer of this living God. And no scheming of her society or of Abram and Sarai can change that fact. So as we learn to pray together, I'd like us to look at a few characteristics of Hagar's conversation with God here. The story of this encounter was uh, really brought to life to me recently as I was reading some excellent work by uh, a fellow named Andrew Root. And much of what I think we can learn from this encounter has been taught to me first by him, and I think it's profound. He rightly notices the strangeness of the story in its context. In any context, the divine and creator God, like a shepherd seeking after a lost sheep, shows up where no other deity would ever be found. He shows up in the wild. Not in some philosophical concept, not in some psychic experience, but in a very real wilderness, a very real, hot, feet are burned from the sand, mouth is parched and sticky, skin is dry from heat stroke, exhausted, pregnant, and hungry reality. Andrew Root says it's significant that the Bible tells us her location, tells us exactly where she is. (laughs) Because God is a God who arrives in our very real circumstances, in the very real places of our lives. Our God is the God who has entered the very time and space he created. And he comes calling. Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Doesn't he know? You may have cried this before. This has been another difficult week. This may have been your cry this week. There have been some devastating fires. We've learned more discoveries or... um, recognizing places where where people have been buried. There's been a lot of victims this week. There's been a lot of pain this week. Does God not know? Does God not know where I'm coming from? Does he not see what has happened? Does he not care where I am right now? God does not ask because God does not know. He asks because he's about to do something. God is not a separate from our experiences kind of God who sits aloof. He asks because he is about to make himself part of her story. After today, after rehearsing her story in the presence of the living God, her past will change. The events of her past will not change. But once she has spoken to God completely about her past, she will never, ever think of her past in the same way. The arriving God, says Andrew Root, is going to press himself onto the narrative of her life, and in so doing, he will redefine it. The season of Olympic Games is coming again upon us, and it's crazy to me that it was 11 years ago that Vancouver hosted the Winter Olympics, which means it's harder and harder, because it's 11 years ago, for me to use these stories as illustrations in youth group, so I bring them here because more of you will remember them. (laughs) The whole story of the Vancouver Olympics for Canada, like, glitters of gold, literally, because we won the most gold medals of those two weeks, and we will not stop talking about it, it's 11 years later. And, of course, we won the gold medals for hockey with that iconic finale in the men's final on the last day. Maybe your heart still skips a beat from residual adrenaline. But what was the story of that hockey game before the final goal? It wasn't necessarily a great story. Like, in hindsight, all of those American points kind of add up, like, to the exciting story, the narrative that leads to Crosby's golden goal. But rewind before the end. When the future is unknown, when we don't have the end to shape the mood of retelling, when we don't know what we're actually hoping for, when we don't know, this is obviously not about hockey anymore, when we don't know how God will answer his promises. Our story feels bleak. But do you see how somehow, when something happens, when someone arrives, that without changing any of the events of the past, somehow everything still changes about the past? Hagar is telling her story to the Lord in the commercial break before the Golden Goal she doesn't realize that she'll never tell the story the same way ever again. She encounters the Lord God, and once she has, she, not, she cannot see anything the same ever again. Hagar, where did you come from, and where are you going? She's got nothing left, and that is precisely the place where God might be most noticeable. Remember Jesus? Blessed, he said. Blessed are you when you realize you bring nothing to the table when you have no more scheming left to try and save yourself, the person who knows their need for God is the most realistic person alive. Friends, where did you come from and where are you going? We know that God is there with you. Yes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, where did you come from and where are you going? What is the narrative of your life? I think often we come to God with our problems and we come with the solutions that we'd like him to just take care of. Here's my problem and this is how it would be solved, God. So this is, like, I need this and this and this and this. No. We need to rehearse our stories in the presence of the one who knows them in order to remind ourselves where we are. There's no agenda except to stand before the living God and say, look, here I am, on the road to <laughs> Things, Things feel great, or things feel like trash. I don't even really know if I know what I need, but I think it might be you. And in rehearsing her story before the living God, he changes something in the end that changes the past backwards through time. Something changes in Hagar's life. Hagar sees that she is seen. To this point, she didn't really even know who this God was, but after he arrived, she names him. She identifies what kind of deity Yahweh is. She's the first person in the Bible to name God. This slave girl. And she calls him the God who sees me. And she gives an explanation. Uh, in the original, it's actually like, apparently, they say it's grammatically complex. And I love the way one translation puts it and how they interpret this. It says that Hagar said, have I not gone on seeing after he saw me? Have I not gone on seeing after he saw me? I think this line characterizes Hagar's life. Now that she has been seen by God, she sees clearly. Everything has changed. Well, what can we expect from praying with God in this way? Like, entrusting him with our narrative? Well, looking at Hagar's experience, it rarely means that we stay put. All throughout this story, God is on a mission to bless the world, to minister to the people made in his likeness, to make them more into who he created them to be. So God tells Hagar to go back to Sarai. If we read this simply as a sterile account of someone following a set of rules, then this command seems cruel and insensitive. But this is the God who has seen her and been with her in her pain. To quote Andrew Root again, He is the one who has heard her story, shared in it, and encountered her as a person. He is the God who so enters our narrative that he came. For God so loved the world that he gave his very self, his only son. Scripture says it was for the joy set before him that he endured the pain of the disaster of our stubborn cycle of chaos. This God so loves Hagar and so values her that he sends her to Sarai. Why? Because Sarai is in her own desert and she needs a minister too. She's this barren woman who's trying to expect this child and whatever evil she has done, God met Hagar in the desert and now Hagar needs to go meet Sarai in her desert. Not as Ruth says, with her tail between her legs, submitting to her bully, but as an ordained minister, blessed with a promise. God has said, Hagar, I have God-like work for you. I also have a promise for you. I will bless you too. Join yourself into the chaos of Abram and his family. Be like me and bless them. And look, I will bless you and your offspring. I will give you a role in the world-transforming narrative that I'm writing now, remember, this is a moment for us to reality check. We love productivity. We love practicality. We love to scheme and think that we can do it on our own. So what does this mean? It means we can be quick to take Hagar's story Hagar's story, and press it onto our own. Or use this as like a nifty how-to manual. Okay, so after meeting God in the wilderness, Hagar needs to go back to her abuser, to pastor her. Therefore, we have a neat plan that we can use for all of time, right? No. Because the Bible isn't a how-to manual, it's a who's who. Who is God, and who are you in light of who he is? What we need is not a new scheme for what to do. We don't need to go, okay, like, how does one tell me, God, exactly what I must do if I was in this situation? What we need is an encounter with a living God. What we need is to pay attention to what he is doing. If we simply try and press Hagar's story onto our own, we're in grave danger of missing God in the wilderness. He doesn't want to press Hagar's story onto our narrative. He's come to personally join your specific story. But he doesn't want us to go, okay, well, what does one do when they come into the wilderness chased off by somebody mistreating me? The goal isn't to go, oh, now I need to go back. The goal is to go, God, what would you have me do? Meet me here in this wilderness. Show me yourself. Show me what I'm to do. Because if we read this without actually wanting to know the God who wrote it, if we try and pray without actually pursuing the one we're trying to know, we're profoundly missing the point. The tenderness of this story is far too beautiful for us to make it into a process document. It's not about what works, but who is working. I have no idea what God will ask of you once he meets you in the desert. But I promise you it will be difficult. And if he asked anyone else to do it, like we look on on Hagar's story, you might jump to their defense and say, God, that's too hard. But just like Abram got up and went, I think we might too quickly underestimate the power of an encounter with a living God. Perhaps when one meets with the creator God, the options become slim. What else would we do but follow? Who else would we, could we trust but the one who has showed up in the desert, who showed up to our death and joined us there and called us by our name? Hagar does return, and as promised, she gives birth to her son, Ishmael, a name that means God hears. And the cycle of helping God does continue in the life of Abram and Sarai for a while longer. Another covenant, another attempt to help God fulfill it. But Abram also starts to grow in his trust for God. One day, finally, faced with the death of the son he and Sarai were promised, Abraham actually finally says, I don't understand how God will keep his promise. But I know he will. I have nothing left to offer, no more schemes to bring. And in that moment, the Lord encounters Abraham, calls his name, and provides a new way. Root, later in his book, speaks of our well-intentioned focus as North American churches to be seeker-sensitive, to be places where people who are seeking God would feel welcomed. And that's not a bad aim. But he suggests that we might be better suited to be seeker-sensitive in the reverse direction, We ought to be sensitive to the God who seeks us. In the crazy of our day-to-day lives, I'm convinced that we miss most of what God is doing. I'm convinced we miss encounters with God in the wild wastelands because we either pretend that everything's fine or we're so busy trying to fix things, so busy trying to help God out, that we miss the fact that he's calling, asking, seeking, what if we spent less time presenting our list of needs and more time recognizing our neediness? Walter Brueggemann says that it is in these states of recognizing our neediness that we can expect God to arrive. When we know we're in the desert, that's when we can be like, oh, I bet God's here. I bet God's doing something. So what if you, today, in the midst of your location, in the middle of your narrative, instead of asking why or how will God keep his promise to be good and faithful, what if you instead asked, Where's God? What is he doing? How might I know him more? And this whole narrative doesn't. Necessarily feel intuitively like a prayer because we're used to the formula of like, okay, dear God, our Father, we need to have this thing, we need to confront God. Hagar doesn't even go seeking God. God shows up, He's like, here I am. And sometimes I think we could do a good job of going, oh, I I bet you God might be calling and seeking. I think that when we look for God looking for us, when we look for God looking for us, we see Him. But we need help to do this. We need one another to help point out what God is doing around us, to take us out of our get-her-done mentality and lead us into remembering that God is active and living. I love what Hagar does. She names this place after this encounter. She names her son after this encounter. She builds in reminders into her life so that when times are tough, she can rehearse the new narrative of her past she can go back and see what God has done that's changed everything before. She says, I was in the wilderness, and that's where I encountered the living God. That's why the people of Israel were obsessed with storytelling, so that as a community, they could be always reminding themselves of who this God is. Friends, as a community, um, as individuals, as families, um, where I think we, we need to go. We need to be naming the things, naming the places where we've encountered God, where he's spoken to us, and doing that in community, telling one another, hey, this is, this is what God was doing, or I think God might be doing this, like in your life, did you notice that thing that you thought was a coincidence, but that was actually maybe like the Lord God? And by naming these things and pointing them out in one another's lives, by saying, look, this is the God who has brought you out of slavery, I think we'll notice him more. And as we begin to pray, as we begin to be a people who want to know God more and pray and seek him more, I, I think by paying attention to him, he'll speak. And I'm excited for what that looks like as a community. Um, I'm going to invite Pastor Bill up, and he's going to uh, lead us in response, in prayer, uh, and then in song as we consider what this word might mean.